Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Dave Cullen, who is a New York Times bestselling author for both of his books, Columbine and Parkland. If you don't know, Columbine is one of my all-time favorite books, so I am beyond thrilled to have Dave on the show today. But before we dive into that conversation, I wanted to remind you all that in the show notes, you can find everything we've talked about on today's episode. So if a book sounds interesting or we mentioned an actor you're not familiar with, you can click that link and go find yourself that book or learn more about the author or whatever else it is that you're interested in. You can also find links to all of our social media accounts and more in the show notes. To get inside access to the stacks and help support the work we're doing here, consider joining us over on Patreon. That's where you can be a part of the stacks pack and find our video book club where other lovers of this show chat with me about the stacks book club picks. There are other fun perks over there too. So go to patreon.com slash the stacks to check it out. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that you leave us a rating and a review. I know I ask you to do this every week. Trust me, I wouldn't ask if it didn't help spread the word about the show. So if you haven't done so yet, please take a moment to rate and review this show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Also, if you're in the market for a book recommendation, let us help you. Email askingthesnacks at gmail.com and we could give you a personalized on-air suggestion from myself and one of our guests. Just send us your name and what it is you're looking for in a book. Be sure to include a few books you've loved or hated so we can find you the perfect match. Email us at askingthesnacks at gmail.com. Okay, now it's time for you all to hear my conversation with author Dave Cullen. All right, everybody. I am here today with author and journalist Dave Cullen. Dave is the author of New York Times bestseller Columbine and most recently New York Times bestseller Parkland Birth of a Movement. Dave's work can be found also in the publications, including the New York Times, Slate, the Daily Beast. And you may have seen Dave on television on CBS This Morning, Rachel Maddow, and a whole lot more. So Dave, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks. Thanks. It's great for being here. Oh, by the way, at my website, DaveCullen.com, you can find all DaveCullen.com. We're going to link to all his social media in the show notes. You guys know the drill. (laughs) Um, So I have to just say this now. I have to get out of my system (laughs) officially. As many of you know, Dave Cullen is one of my favorite authors. 
And this is a really important day in my life because I have an actual physical list of authors that I wanted to have on the podcast. And you're the first one on my list. So this is huge for me personally and a little bit embarrassing because I'm like fangirling, but it's okay. (laughs) We're going to talk about you. I never get tired of that. You know, and like I used to really have a really hard time, by the way, with like up and through Columbine, I had like a really hard time with compliments and I would always get so Mm. embarrassed. And I talked to my uh, editor about it. Uh, John Carp, who's now running Simon & Schuster, he's brilliant. And he's like, just take the compliment. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, he's like, just say thank you. And like, and, but you know what? But And mean it. And now I was like, oh, okay, it's okay. But like, and like, yeah, I'm like, now I'm just like happy. Like, okay, that's good. It's yeah. Like, instead of like, why, you know, do the whole like, you know, my Catholic guilt thing. I was like, right. oh, I'm not worthy. Like, okay, but thanks. So anyway, I love being here. So, well, good. I'm so glad. We'll stop with the compliments okay, yeah, for I, a little I, bit. I, I might I, compliment you again. I'm going to try not to. Also, I don't compliment very easily. So just so you know. <laughs> okay. So I want to start kind of where I've listened to you on a lot of things. I've read your stuff, but I don't actually know a ton about your origin story. Oh, so okay. let's rewind a little bit. Where do you come from? How did you become a journalist? How did this happen? Okay. Well, yeah, I usually don't talk about it. Okay. So like uh Midwestern Catholic boy, suburb of Chicago, nine kids, wow. dreaded middle child. <laughs> um, yeah. In the sixties, a very Republican oh God, household and district and like really, you know, really tense upbringing with, you know, nuns. And also, you know what? In gay and not knowing it, which had such an impact on my life of like, I, mean, I was like bullied pretty badly and, didn't know why I was different. You know, the whole thing, like I knew it was di- I was different and didn't know why. I felt like it was an alien planet from an alien planet and uh, just didn't fit in. But like a really fun kid. But um, I kept going back the, of when I started writing. Because like in fourth grade, um, we there were different projects we could do. And I chose the one with just like a handful of people who picked up like writing a little uh, storybook for the first graders. Mm. And I ended up writing almost half the book. <laughs> Because I just like started churning them out. And one of them was called Movie Star Mouse. I can't remember. They were all sort of like little nutso uh, things. And I kept thinking like that was the first time I sort of expressed it. But it was only later I realized I really started writing when I was like five. Hmm. I'm not sure how old. So my older brother and I, um, we would lie in bed when my parents would send us to bed early so they could like have a little quiet time with nine freaking kids. It was, it was a freaking zoo. I bet. Uh, four bedrooms. <laughs> Um, I mean, just, uh, anyway, so, um, we would lie in bed and every night we would do another little chapter or kind of scene in this ongoing, it was sort of a cross between a novel and a soap opera. Um, but it was like these cowboys, it was on a ranch, we had characters, we'd even rewrite scenes. Like we would get, sometimes we'd get the next night and we'd decide like, oh, I didn't like that thing last night. We didn't call them scenes, but they were scenes. Right. And I'm like, so we would like redo it. We'd back up and redo it. And it was this ongoing thing. And I only get now. I was like, "Oh my god, we're freaking writing a book together. We're collaborating." So he's my first collaborator. Does he write? No, no. He's a uh, well, in a way. I mean, it's it's embedded in different careers. He's a prosecutor. Okay. So like, that's a version of story. That's storytelling too, for sure. Totally. And you know, and when I see him doing his opening statements and his closing, actually, do you know the uh, the 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 Quan McDonald trial in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Um, first uh, cop. In a generation, maybe ever, yes. uh, uh, um, uh, convicted of uh, of murder, of killing. Yeah. Um, so that was taken away from Chicago because right. the, the whole thing with Ron right. Emanuel and given to a special prosecutor in the suburbs. 
He was one of the special, special prosecutors. Wow. He was one of the three people on the team. He did a lot of the, uh, he did a lot of the cross-examinations. Wow. And I've heard his case. voice then because there was a great podcast. 12 shots or 16 13? shots. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But it's okay. 16 <laughs> shots. But I've heard his voice then. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. While I was writing Parkland and some big things happening and covering the kids, I was like the second most uh, in my family. I was sort of like. Yeah. This, the number two person of something That's going right. on. Um, but two of nine is still pretty good. <laughs> like you weren't nine of nine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that was that was quite a thing. Everybody was watching like um, the trial live and some of them, a lot of them went to the trial. But um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I got an interesting family. I mean, we have like some pioneers, like two of my sisters are airplane pilots. Wow. Yeah. One of them uh, for United, she's retired now with raising her kids, one of them for Southwest. Wow. And uh, yeah, and with women, when when it was really rare for right. women to do that. Right. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, I mean, my, my dad especially did kind of instill in us just like, sort of like do anything you want. You know, I can go back further. Um, <laughs> almost half of my family's accountants. Okay. And like, and even my extended family, there's a lot of accountants and lawyers. And uh, there's like, there's not a single other creative person of like, God, I have like 40 cousins. I don't think there's a single person who does anything creative. And it really, I really used to think, I used to wonder, it's like, am I wrong? Is this like in my blood? You know, it was like, or is, you know, is it just me doing this or am I sort of like nuts that this is really my calling? And I really have doubts about that because like you do see things. Um, so it wasn't actually... I found out, like, I think in my 30s, maybe it was one. I, I was a businessman, too, and I did the Army and lots of other stuff. And um, I dropped out of college. To, Wait, you were in the Army? I dropped out of college to enlist in the, I didn't uh, in know the, this. In the infantry. This yeah. makes more sense yeah. to me all of a sudden. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then I went to officer candidate school. Um, yeah, they asked me to go to officer candidate school and become an officer. Uh, but then I broke my back and um, oh. had to uh, leave. So I lived in Walter Reed for six months. Um Wow. In, in, in D.C., yeah. Um, it, in, the, in the Arthur Ward, the, the famous – so it was all double and triple amputees in me in and a you. body cast. Um, did you break your back like in – like, or did you have like a weird combat. accident no, like you after, fell off a horse a or something? It was, okay. it was Yeah, it was climbing a tree actually. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Yes, I know. Yeah, I'm it's like okay. I was talking to one of my friends. Like, yeah, I, I know it's a terrible story, and she's like, one of my friends, like, I think that's a great story. <laughs> well, <laughs> you got to think like if you <laughs> had broken your back and you weren't in the army, it would be a really great story. But because it was the <laughs> army, people are like, wait, what were you doing I, I climbing know. a tree? I know. But anywhere else, it would be like, oh my god, he broke his back. Like what? Um, okay, so I do have. Yes, yeah, so far afield, but yeah, it's okay. Go back to, we go, back. we go nuts all the time. Okay, so here's my question before. Columbine happens, let's say oh, sure. yeah. March 1999, you're a journalist. Did you think you'd be an author? Did you have a book you wanted to write before this kind of happened in the world and you yeah. heard the call? Yeah, well, it's kind of the other way around. Okay. So, um, but I will back up a little. So I became a businessman. I worked for Arthur Anderson okay. and Ross Perot's company, EDS. Because oh uh, after I broke my back, I decided, I think what they rated me like uh, – 23% chance or something that I would become paralyzed because oh, I saw wow. bone fragments in my spinal canal. I decided I had to do something uh, where I wouldn't be a drain on society. And mm -hmm. I, so I had to do something sensible. So I got my math and computer science undergrad degree. Okay. So that's my undergrad. And okay. um, I went back to college, finished, and then became a computer guy and then a management consultant and went to Kuwait after the Gulf War for two years. And that's where I built my freedom fund to go back and quit all that okay. and go to grad school in my 30s. Uh, 
to study creative writing and to be a novelist. Okay. And then while I was there, one of my profs is like, basically the short story is like, you're really good at this edit essays. Have you thought about doing this? And I was like, essays, ugh. And he's like, you <laughs> idiot. Like, you don't get what an essay is. It's like, so you know, it's not the narrow thing you think. So he had me try it. He's like, just write a scene tonight. Um, and I did. He's like, this is good. Now write the book. So I was working on a memoir, and I used my memoir as my, um, as my you know, about coming back from Kuwait, as uh, my master's thesis. And so I finished the program, and um, I was working on finishing the man- – rewriting the uh, – that and looking for a publisher and decided I should um, start building a platform. I don't think we had that word then back right. in 1999, but the idea. And by the way, I had done journalism in college, okay. like almost 20 years before. Okay. And a ton where I interviewed George Bush senior wow. when I was 19. Oh my God. About a week before he was elected vice president, I inter- interviewed Bono and The Edge Whoa. after the first U2 album. <laughs> and like I did like 300 stories. I was like a political you know, reporter and... Um, Anyway, so I loved doing that, but I got really burned out on journalism. And I thought I got burned out on writing was the thing. And here's okay. really a message to other writers out there. I had gotten so into this niche of daily journalism and, and doing that as because there was a way to do it. It was like right. a college paper. And then I got burned out on it. And I thought – and so I knew, okay, this isn't, this isn't for me. And so I thought like, okay, I was wrong. Writing isn't for me. No, what I didn't get is like that form, daily short form journalism that. isn't it. I like both journalism and especially writing and the creative part of it. And I know like outlet for it. There's no room for creativity, you know, an 800 word. Right. You know, right. You know, this is what happened. In an hour. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just sort of like allowed my creative world to be narrowly defined down as all our lives tend to happen. Mm-hmm. And then decided I didn't like it and didn't realize, well, back up. Right. You know, to what you originally were. Oh, by the way, the one thing that I forgot to, uh, I found out later, my dad wanted, I'm going to go back okay. one second. My dad want, wanted to be a writer when he was in, in uh, college and he wrote for his high school and college papers. He wrote for a Chicago, a real Chicago paper while in high school. As wow. A um, but then decided he couldn't do it. Then I found out my grandfather also, he got a scholarship as this, you know, poor Irish guy. But, like, he was a great writer and a poet when he was, like, 14. Wow. And then my aunt, you know, showed me his, like, poems when he was, like, 14. His grandfather published a revolutionary paper in Chicago, um, maybe basically before the IRA in the 1800s, wow. uh, and was involved in this invasion of Can- – Irish invasion of Canada, Irish-American Whoa. invasion of Canada just after the Civil War, uh, fomenting it. and um, So, which, like, writing is in your paternal line. It's totally <laughs> in my blood. And I was like, oh, I had no, I, I thought I was the only one. Like, this was whole history of people. Wow. Um, and since him, who have not su- sort of succeeded as writers. Right. Not, not, or not sort of, like, gone there, given mm-hmm. up and not thought they could. Right. And I have, like, 100 years of writers trying, 150 years of writers trying to make it happen. So I felt better, like, oh, I'm finally getting there. Of like, anyway, um, so... Going back, so then back to the to the 1999. Again, I had given up journalism like almost 20 years before, but kept getting pulled back to right. writing and creative writing, and that's why I went to the, the writing program. So then in 1999, I hadn't done a journalism story in almost 20 years until April 1999, about maybe two years before, and I got an op-ed published, was my first piece, and talked to Salon, which was a hot mm-hmm. magazine mm-hmm. then, and talked to Joan Walsh, who was the brand new news editor that went on to become editor in chief, and she's wonderful. Um, and uh, it, it was about the Matthew Shepard mm, trial, of course. And so uh, I talked to her, and she's like, "Oh, I was gonna, uh, 
I like that. I was going to run it. I was going to pair it with, uh, with a reported news piece, but then I never got around to assigning it. And I thought, uh, and then there was this pause, and I'm like, is this supposed to go, like, you know, be the go-getter guy? I'm like, I can do that for you, ma'am. Yeah. I'm, like, oh, um, I'm like, oh, that's too corny. I just can't. I can't. And then the silence and like, uh, and uh, the answer is yes, that is what uh, what she was hoping for. And it was a test. And I failed the test Got by it. saying nothing. But she decided to bail me out anyway and goes, you live out there. Because I was in Denver. I was like, would you want to cover it for me? And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. So I covered that on wow. no notice. Just drove out there. And I'm like, you know, New York Times and everybody had been there. What for year was that? 90, 1999. It was like okay. two weeks before Columbine. Um, okay. And so I went out to cover the trial for them. And, um, and my journalism friends were like, just... I'm like, how am I going to do a story the first day? And my, my friend, actually, Kevin Davis is great. I'll have to look him up. Um, said, uh, it'll come right back to you. Just look around. In 20 minutes, you'll have a bunch of story ideas. And I'm thinking, like, no, I won't. I got there. I did. There was like, mm-hmm. stories everywhere. Oh. So um, I did that story. But then uh, it was the first trial. And um, Henderson, uh, Russell Henderson, he pled out. So right. the whole thing was just that day. So I got one story out of it right. instead of several. And then I'm thinking, like, okay, I'm not going to do another story. Um but because of that, I had done it again, mm-hmm. and I had an editor to turn to. Mm-hmm. So Columbine happened. I was in Denver. I sat down for lunch uh, with my budget gourmet entree beef stroganoff. I was just starting <laughs> to eat, watching the local news about a quarter to noon, and it just came on. There were reports of shots fired at a high school. No, no injuries. Um, so I thought it was probably nothing. So I, I called and left an apologetic voicemail to Joan mm-hmm. saying, it's probably nothing. There's a school shooting outside of Denver. I'm going to go out there just in case. And I just got in the car and went. And right. that's also sort of like my number one thing to not just journalists, but like I think kind of everybody, everybody. in any field. Right. Just sort of like if there's a thing, if there's a moment, like a door opening that seems like nothing and probably stupid and like, can't, like just, just freaking get in your car and go. Right. You know, uh, you know, Woody Allen uh, said, I think, you know, 99% of life is showing up. And like, it, it so is. It's right. Like, I mean, obviously, then you have to do the work. You have to be good at what you are, blah, blah, blah. But like, you got to get there. Like, right. None of, that, none of that talent does you anything unless you get in your freaking car and you just show. I, I had no idea where Columbine was. I'd never heard of it. Right. I drove up toward the mountains and outside my, uh, you know, I was going to, that's what journalists do. You just fumble your way toward it. Right. Stop at a gas station or whatever <laughs> or a series of them, you know. Um I saw a helicopter circling out the mm. window to my left. And that's when my stomach clenched and then my first realization, oh, shit, this is, this is, something horrible is happening down there. And then I drove toward the helicopters. Wow. So that, that's how it started for me. And I had, I had no idea. Obviously, 20 years later, I will be sitting across the table with you. Still talking about it. Like, oh, I know. And so many, by the way, I think four or five different times in my life, I've said, and totally meant it, like, Okay, thank God I'm done with that. I'm never, you know, writing about Columbine again. I'm I'm done with that part of my career. Right. And meant it and thought, you know, it keeps just pulling me back. But um, right. yeah, I had no idea, like, this is where this would take me. But sure. Well, how life, could you right? know? You never know. How yeah. would you know? There's no way. I mean, it, and it wasn't, there had been obviously mass shootings before, but there was nothing like Columbine, not just the events of it, but also the reaction to it. And like with the news cycle and the images and stuff, it became... A friend of mine was actually just saying to me, he was like, it's not the biggest mass shooting. It's not the first. It's not the last. And for some reason, you know, this is the one that everybody remembers when they heard about it or they remember it. And it like, was the instigating. Yeah. It was, it was what took 
I hate to use words like small, but relatively small in terms of news stories and, and death count. Um, right. This sort of fomenting problem. The fact that it wasn't the first is actually part of what made it more powerful. I think Oklahoma City would be etched in our memory. It would be much bigger if there had been a series of small ones before. Right. And then it's like, oh, my God. Um, but because it was like the first, it was more shocking but it also made it feel more like a one-off right. and not necessarily like this is going to be happening every day. But because we've been having several smaller uh, school shootings and America was already very on edge. And then when this sort of went through the roof and with the bombs that didn't go off right. in hundreds and the, uh, just unthinkable, then it was like, shit, like right. not, now we're living in a whole – it. yeah, so it – and unfortunately – it's inspired others. all the others. Right. And it, most of them. Now, you know, we know from their journals and, and their manifestos. Right. Like they talk about it. Yeah. With each other. And right. they're like, these are, you know, Eric and Dylan are seen, seen sadly, as the founding fathers. Right. Which is horrible. So what yeah. Columbine does that is personally for me, it's my favorite kind of genre of book, which is a truth telling of an event that we think we know, or like a, I don't know, reinvestigation of something that we think that we know. Um, Columbine does it, a book that I love, Blood in the Water, which is about the Attica prison uprising that came out a few years ago. Um, there's other books. There's a book about Oklahoma City bombing that kind of does the same thing. And so what I wonder, I don't want to go too much into the book because mm -hmm. I feel like it's been out for 10 years. Go read it. It's amazing. But my question to you is, if you were going to write the Columbine book now, what would you do differently or what would you change? Or are there things that you know now that you wish you would have been thinking about as you were writing this book? Because you had 10 years from the event mm -hmm. and now you've had another 10 years since the book's come out. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, God, this, this is a little hard. Uh, I, not really. I don't think so. I mean, I, there are things that now that I would include and I keep learning more about sure. it, including some of the uh, parts. Yeah. I mean, the part that I really wish there was more. Am I... <laughs> editor, my agent, everybody who read it was like, oh, I want more about the killer's families. I was like, I included every, right. like, tell me about it. Me too. <laughs> I included every detail I could find. And I was surprised how much I could find from like, including about the killers. By the way, can I back up with the, mm -hmm. the killers? I was so afraid while writing it that I couldn't really bring the killers to life or I wouldn't mm. have enough information about them. And I kept thinking like, you know, Capote, of course, sort sure. of stands there towering. Sure. But I'm like, he got to, like, go to Kansas and, like, not just meet the killer. Like, hang like, out. Hang out with yeah. them. Like, he fell in love with one of them. I'm right. like, he spent, like, I don't know, like, hundreds of hours with them. Like, my guys are dead. Like, right. I would never meet them. How can I possibly bring them to life? And, like, what is there? I was surprised. Like, you know, as I dug and dug, it helped that I took long enough that their journals came out. Right. Um, and I didn't have direct access to their basement tapes, but um, the people I did, like Agent Fusilay, mm -hmm. you know, who's a amazingly in this weird case, the first PhD in psychology ever mm. hired by the FBI happened to have a son in the school and like right. took on the case. And then like, he spent hundreds of hours with me. It, luckily he retired from the FBI. So his two hobbies were golf and me. Um, <laughs> I, that was sort of my take. I would go over to his house for six or seven hours at a time. And I knew when it was just becoming too much, when he would start standing up and doing his imaginary golf swing <laughs> without even noting it. And I'm like, right. okay, he's just so just restless. And right. Um, and, and his wife, Mimi, would come in with Cokes for, like, the third time and snacks. And, um, but anyway, um, there was just so much information. Oh, and Dwayne had studied them. Dwayne Fuselite studied them, with like, frame by frame at, the, mm -hmm. at 2 in the morning. And so I mean, there was that, but there were, like, um, their police records. And, and when they got 
busted for uh, breaking into the van. Uh, you know, of course, they were interviewed separately and they had different accounts, which right. was very revealing. And right. like, the cop wrote up like whole conversations. So I like those conversations. So I also I found lots of dialogue from them sure. um, in these various places. But um, because of that, also, when they were in the um, so they were in the diversion program for a year, which is like uh, deferred adjudication is called in some places, they had to see a counselor from from the DA's office every two weeks. And um, that person wrote like a paragraph each visit, summarizing the visit. And then for whatever reason, halfway through that person, their counselor rolled off and another person came on. So you get another person. So you have two persons sort of a take on them and you can see it very mm. changing over time. And mm-hmm. also they would use snatches of dialogue from them. Like So there's a whole file of them, you know, when they went into the program, they had to fill out these forms with all, you know, it was like eight or 10 pages, sort of their parents on them. A thousand pages of their writings was released. Oh and God. so I, I got IMs that Eric did with different girls. Like, right. There's so many different pieces, fragments mm-hmm. about them. And by the way, I don't talk about this that much, but um, I broke the book. It's alternating chapters. It's kind of the before and the after story. Right. But um, I wrote those separately and I wrote the after story Pretty much chronologically, I tried to, and then problem chapters I would stop, and the other reasons, chapters that were too painful, I kind of spaced out. But for the most part, I wrote those in order. The after story, Eric and Dylan's story, I took a completely different approach. I did just all Eric, and it took mm. me five months, and I just immersed myself in Eric. And every mm. day, I would start my day by either listening to some of his favorite music, like Ramstein or KMFDM, right. or watching one of the films he loved, reading some of his journal, you know, all of the above, just immersing myself in Eric world. I would write in his voice just as Eric, not to be in the book, but just get in the, right to get in his head and feel like I could do it. At first it was impossible and I couldn't, and it, you know, seemed all wrong, but gradually I got like, that's how like, like, you know, a person like, okay, I know him. Cause like I can, I can pretend I can impersonate him mm-hmm. can pretty convincingly, at least to myself, like, so that really helped. But anyway, and then I would write scenes with him and sort of trying to infuse his personality onto the page by just taking him inside of me. And obviously Dylan was in a lot, most of those scenes with him. But for the Dylans, I would just like scribble something down or leave, you know, gaps. I just wouldn't take care of it. It was just like quick and right. dirty. And so that's why the Dylan part was easier. So then when I finished Eric, um, I did Dylan. It took me four months to do him okay. and kind of getting in his head and then, you know, filling in the places I also didn't realize at the time, God, I haven't talked about this in a long time. Um, I got depressed. Uh, I didn't realize until I was almost done. Um, maybe it was when I was done. Oh, I guess I just finished him and we went to see a Harry Potter movie. I can't remember which one. Um, it's one of the latter ones when they were like, Harry and, and Hermione were on some bridge or something and he makes them go because it's too dangerous for them. And it's all about like, you know, like right, he's going to protect his friends. Right. Um, because he's sure that, um, you know, he's going to get killed. And um, and there's something like I was I, I bring paper in movies, theaters, mm-hmm. and I just scribble mm. like crazily, um, which, by the way, jumping ahead, the epilogue in Parkland uh, is at a Bruce Springsteen show. Hmm. Um, most of the first draft I wrote while at that Bruce Springsteen show, wow. when he brings up the the March for Our Lives kids mm. and calls it the March for Our Lives Day. Mm-hmm. And I just like got choked up like I just did now uh, thinking about it and pulled out of my pocket and just started scribbling mm. and the quotes of what he's saying and wrote it. And I got home and then like did to like one in the morning, did rewrites of it hmm. and uh, sent it and then continued refining. But um, but like, yeah, movies and films and all different things are often inspiration. But um, 
But I realized, yeah, I, I forgot about this. With the Harry Potter thing, um, and then a good friend of mine who's really supportive, uh, when we came out of the Harry Potter film, so much was just coming up. And right. I just, uh, I'm like, can I just write some more? He's like, take your time. And he just waited for me, like, well, in the lobby. I wrote for another, like, 40 minutes. Wow. All this stuff. But realizing um, I had just enough distance, something about Harry Potter and the friends relationship, I can't even remember now, rem- made me connect to Eric and his, or Dylan and his friends and some, some sort of connection <clears throat> um, that clicked and I just had to get it down. But I also realized I've been depressed by, well, it wasn't just depressed. I isolated myself mm-hmm. like him and feeling like he felt mm. like isolated from the world. And I, I kind of did that and became a hermit and just, by, and I felt like, wow, like this sort of excitement of this creativity and getting so much about him made me sort of ecstatic and, I realized how depressed I had been by being out of the depression. And so I could mm-hmm. see it suddenly mm-hmm. like five feet away from it. It's right, right there. And then I'm like, now I really have to write more of this because I'm like five feet away from the depression. I'm still so close and it's so fresh that I can capture it and infuse Dylan's depression into the book with what I just had. But I don't know. I, I can't write very well while being depressed. But I was right. like, okay, now is my moment. Once you got out of this, it. Anyway, yeah, but so that was my process with both of those. So that's nine months together. That, that was almost a year right. of doing just, just those two. Those two, but that's the first draft. But it was so the way to go about it because um, I had to get inside their heads and discovering like, oh, I guess I do know more about these. Um, and the, yeah, I can say this now because I've talked to Sue Klebold so many times. Um, we sent them an ARC, an advanced mm-hmm. copy of the book to them. Um, and they really liked it. And uh, <clears throat> well, to say that Sue talked to me, because now I've talked to her many times, mm-hmm. um, they didn't want me talking about this at the time, but um, <clears throat> before it came out, and I was like, oh, God, I was so afraid. And she said, well, I wouldn't be talking to you um, if I didn't like it. But she liked it because she's like, you really got Dylan, and um, you got the good and the bad in him. Mm-hmm. And she's like, obviously, he did this horrible thing, but he was this loving kid, too. And this is many years before she did her book. Like, mm-hmm. But she said, um, yeah, he's like a really sweet kid, too. He was very loving. And there were the two parts. And, like, you didn't shy away from either, either of them. And um, it seemed like an honest portrayal. And, like, obviously I didn't know everything about him that they did. But um, but that was, you know, such a relief that uh, – oh, God. You're, so your question is what you would have different. <laughs> I mean, what I would like to do is, like, add more about, about their them. family and their uh, mm. friends. But, that you know, that was just unavailable. Right. But otherwise, you know, there's a few small things – I listened to advice from one person that I wish I had and cut out too much of Patrick Ireland. I wish there was more of him in there. Mm. And uh, really, and there's one scene um, with uh, the Sander, with Linda Sanders that I wish were longer, the original version that okay. I cut way back. Um, and, and so I think with mo- as with most things that are cut, it's like when somebody, when an editor or, you know, another good writer friend or whatever, anybody suggesting something being, should be cut and you disagree I've learned this the hard way, um, and I learned this on the you know with the draft of the Gay Soldiers book, and really drastically changed something. Is um, what's really being said is that uh, well, if you totally disagree, like you got to follow your instinct is probably right, but there's something that's not working. Right. So you are correct. This needs to be in there, but you got to find the right yeah, way. You're, yeah. You're, you're, they don't. They think it's cuttable and it's chaff because like you haven't told them why it's important. Or right. You haven't made the connection. Or you haven't made it sing, or there's something that's missing there. So, like, yeah, it needs to be in there, but you haven't done it yet. And if I can jump in, so um, 
the gay soldier story, I'm just going to like minor spoiler. So um, <laughs> it's not even out yet. I know. So I'm still <laughs> writing it. But it involves two different uh, soldiers. But this is, oh, I think this will be illustrated about my writing. And I think about the writing process. Um, the two guys who came to know each other, they're friends. They're not, you know, lovers. But um, they, they meet about halfway through um, and become very close. Um, and I meet them about halfway through um, in the year 2000. Okay. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I've been following them for 20 years oh uh, or 19 years now. Um, so one of them, I open it. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, like, uh, I open it on his first day in country, in war, okay. uh, the Iraq war. And it's a heroin day. Uh, that's when <laughs> IEDs were really uh, bad. Right. Um, obviously, he lives through it. He's, uh, but um, but I'll just say it, it's a really harrowing uh, first day. Um, and so that's the opening scene. It's a powerful way to open, which by the way, I was doing it as a piece for the New York times magazine, which didn't work out cause I took way too long. Um, but a friend of mine who's not even a writer, uh, just a, a gym friend of mine. And I was telling him like, you know, I keep figuring out how to like get the piece working. Cause like the really killer scene is this first day. Uh, mm-hmm. they call it route Irish. You know, it's, it's the route from the airport to Got the it. green zone. Got like, it. so like, not even to the green right. zone. Right. You're yet. not even like checked in. Yep. Exactly. Um, and, like, that's the killer scene. And i got to figure out how to get to it sooner. I keep, like, adding this right. stuff to it. He's like, um, and I, I can't figure out how to make it, you know, work to get there sooner. Um, and he's like, well, that's a killer scene. Like, why don't you start there? And I was like, I, yeah, I know, but I can't because blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, really? <laughs> why can't you? Like, you said it's your best scene. Like, why don't you just start there? <laughs> and I was like how did I talk myself into this fact that I couldn't? And they're like, you need to know all this stuff. And I love Inmates Reyes stuff. Right. By the way, I don't even know the story, but like when I was talking to one of my great writer friends, Karen Alvin, and who's got a great book out there called, uh, look up Karen. I'll Alvin. find it. It'll yes. be in the show okay, notes. Good. good. Um, when I was talking about how much I love Inmates Reyes opening, she's like, uh, there, I hope they get this right. There is a Rad Bradbury, Ray, Ray Bradbury story mm-hmm. that opens. It continued to rain. Hmm. Which I hope I got that right because I've never read it. But like, I, but I love that. It's right. like so like, not just it was ready, like it continued. But anyway, like, you know, the world, like anything, the world was already going on, right? right. Before this began. But um, so that was a, like a thing. And so like, now the book is starting there. But for some reason, I'm going to call him Brett because I did this big piece in Salon that got it started that mm-hmm. won a Glad Media Award. Um, and, and so we had to change their names and we said so. So I'm going to use still the fake names, uh, Brett. Um so I, I felt like Brett's also had to start comparably, like his mm-hmm. first day. But I also I did want to lead up to it, and he was in the Gulf War and okay. leading up to it, and it just wasn't working. It was so, it was so not nearly as powerful as Drake's. And a really great writer friend of mine read like the first fifty pages, and it starts out with Drake's scene, and then also in his boyfriend Mark, and then you know after maybe fifteen or twenty pages, I can't remember, you know, it cuts to to Brett and. Um, my friend Billy, uh, he's like, he used to get angry about it. And he's like, oh, I really want to know a Drake story, Drake and Mark Moore. Like, why are you introducing this other guy? And like, uh, and he's like, he's just really pissed off. Mm. And um, and he's like, I want this story. He's like, I don't think these other people should be in the book. It's like, why, you know, or you got to introduce them at the beginning. And I'm thinking like, all sorts of books introduce like another major character. Right, later. In another chapter or something. Right. It's like, um, and one of my, you know, Devil in the White City, which I helped, you know, partially basis on they do about 10 he does about 10 pages in one and then switches to the other Mm -hmm. um and i was like really back and forth and like and then suddenly it got to me like oh i know what he's telling me that he didn't think he's telling me is like 
the second story sucks. Right. <laughs> it's not good enough. Right. I haven't made it interesting. I haven't made it comparable. They're not equal. And, and the, actually, yeah. the way I realized that is I went back to Devil in the White City. Mm. And I was like, because he starts out with the, the architect story. Mm-hmm. And the second story is the psychopath. And it's about 10, page 10 or something. I'm like, well, how did he do it on page 10? Like, um, and I start page 10. It's like the first freaking page. It's like this guy... You know, a train pulls into the station in Chicago, smoke coming up, mm. like it steps out. You know, it's already, you can tell there's this feel of like this effort is going to probably. Right. People. And actually, it <laughs> hints at like, you know, all the young women, you know, coming to Chicago and their parents don't know, like, what awaits them. It, it, there's a sense of foreboding and immediately, like, he freaking nails it. I'm like, right. oh, if I had nailed it, like, of course, if you flip to this, like, your first reaction was like, ah, oh, it's not Drake, whatever. But in the first paragraph, I just like had you sucked in. It's like, mm. oh, he didn't like the second story because it fails. And then I was like, okay, the, I really want his Gulf War story to have this lead up. And there's so much more to it. And then, then I realized, you know, after several, you know, a week or two, I'm probably longer wrestling. I was like, again, why did I get in my head that like, since I opened Drake's story's first day of war, that Brett's has to open the same way. Right. In fact, that's kind of boring to do the same right. thing. And so, so it actually, now it opens, Drake's, or Brett's story opens with uh, driving to a gay bar the first mm. time. When he's also a captain, he's a company commander. Mm. And he's just figuring out that he's gay. And I will give a little away. Um, they, were, they were stationed in Texas, uh, like 100 miles or something from, uh, from Austin. And he and his buddies, you know, the straight guys, and they're all company commanders. They're all captains. And um, and they go into Austin every weekend. And it's sort of like the playground, this wonderland, and they all love it. And they go to 6th Street, which anybody's been to Austin, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they call it Dirty 6th Street. Right. So they would go there every weekend. And um, one day, one night when they're at this, one of his buddies said something about, uh, yeah, don't get lost, you know, don't ever get lost and end up on 4th Street. Like, that's where, like, the... You know, right. Like gays are. <laughs> and Brett uh, heard that and in his mind went like, oh, I guess I'm going to Fourth Street. Right. And that was like when he was just starting to admit to himself he might right. be gay or right. to check right. it out. And then so then like I think he like planned for like two weeks, like, how am I gonna make an excuse? Like he totally like set up like during the week, pretended there was like problems in his company, mm. so we'd have to stay home. He let them go. Like in this whole thing, oh, I can't go. I got to work this. You know, let them go. Gave him a half hour head start mm. so he wouldn't like run into them on the highway. And then drove up there wow. too and went to the gate bar. And then had no idea what. And he had just, this is when Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was the early years. And um, and it like in his company, it had to like be there like when there was like a briefing about it. But it also kind of worked to his advantage because he sort of seen this coming. So the mm-hmm. JAG officer came to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh. Brett had to ask a lot of questions on behalf of the company. Like, of course, everybody's like not asking questions because, of course, soldiers are all acting like, oh, the whole gay thing. Like, you know, right, nobody's right. going to ask any questions. They're just, you know, kind of making right. fun of it. So he had kind of an outward like, OK, I better ask some questions so the guys know the answers. So he was quietly like asking all the things he was wondering mm. and like what you could and could not do. Yeah, I mean, that's just thing that gay people do when they're coming out to is right. like kind of telling himself at the same time he wasn't doing it for himself, but in retrospect, realizing like, well, that's kind of what what I was doing. doing. But anyway, so it starts there with him. But I guess I was telling all that is just like, really, it's like, um, I got to sometimes find, I grope my way toward things and figuring them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can't remember what that is an answer to, but that's kind of my process. I saw um, on Charlie Rose when the show was really big, 
years, maybe 10 or more years ago, when they called themselves the Three Amigos, those three mm-hmm. great Latino directors, uh, Inaratu, um, Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, they've been great friends for like right, 20 years right. or something, and they help each other with their projects. And uh, so Charlie had them on together for the mm-hmm. hour. It's a great interview. You should okay. look up. And this is before any of them had won any Oscar. Right. One thing. They all have now, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it was after Pan's Labyrinth. Charlie was talking about their process. And what I think Alfonso uh, or, or Calderon said, uh, well, we're all really different. Like, Guillermo says that, like, he imagines a movie first, knows every frame of it is already pictured in his head. And basically, he says his process is just taking the movie in my head and getting it onto celluloid. Hmm. It's already there. Interesting. And, um, and in Aratu, if I'm saying it right, uh, mm. it's sort of the other end where, like, he's got a vague sense of what he's doing. It sort of fumbles his way there. Mm. And Quaron, uh, uh, sorry if I'm screwing up their names, but uh, I'm terrible with names. I can't believe I've even pulled them all out of my butt. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> um, and I love all three of them in different ways. But I, I love Quaron the most. But, okay. Um, <laughs> But he said, I'm some sort of in the middle. middle. And I thought, like, yeah, I'm sort of in the middle, too. But that has haunted me forever. And thinking, and it took me about a year or two afterwards, like, oh, who am I kidding? I'm a fumbler. Like, I'm I'm like him. Like, I know what I kind of, I know what I wanted to feel like. Right. When I'm done. But I don't know. You don't always know what it is. I don't ever know, like, really how I'm going to get there and make that happen. Yeah, I know the effect in sort of, like, what I'm trying to do. But I I just got to, like keep doing it and like working my way toward in so much trial and error and then like and then once it comes and things tend to come into rush and in spurts and like oh and then it's like this exhilaration like people ask me to you haven't asked but like like if you love the, i freaking love writing um mm. when it's not like torture like wrestling i totally sometimes you feel like wrestling something it's like a freaking bear i'm trying right, to wrestle right. for weeks or months um but man when you get it and then like also when i'm waking up and yeah, it'll just come to me all these different ideas. My my problem is then I don't go back and read them enough, and I don't soon. So while I'm here in LA, then I, I brought like five pages of these just like scribbled notes. I, I fold the paper into quadrants, okay. and so there's like then eight little sheets okay. on, on the two sides, and I number them as I go, and then can't read it. And uh, like so, I was trying to. I brought them with me and trying to decipher them. Like what the hell is I'm saying? Sometimes I have to just keep reading like half the page. Until I can like make something out, and then I remember, and then scribbles start making sense because right. I know because I remember the, con- the context. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. But um, yeah. But that feeling when it's coming, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's so exhilarating. That's that's what that's the, the best feeling yeah. in the world. Oh my I god, I love freaking, that. Freaking love that. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last. Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit because we have to get... This episode is going to go long, everybody. Relax. I'm sitting with Dave Collin. I don't care what you think at home. Get over it. Okay, so so we have this segment called Ask the Stacks where someone's written in and they're going to... They ask us for book recommendations. So I'm going to read it and then we're going to come up with some ideas for that. Okay, so this is from Catherine Salant. I think I'm saying that right. Sorry. She says, I've realized that I really love stories of traveling to or living somewhere where you should or could fit in, but don't particularly around appearance or racial identity. Americana is a prime example of what I love, where she's African and in America, but not African-American. Also in Becoming, Michelle's observations when visiting Nairobi, where she says, quote, we were outsiders even with our black skin. And, and Catherine goes on to say, she re- mostly reads fiction, but she's open to nonfiction recommendations. So that's what we're we're kind of looking for those outsider in a place where maybe they could be inside. I came up with a few ideas, Catherine. All two of them are nonfiction because I like nonfiction. So I came up with a book called The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wim I don't know how to say her last name, Wamaria. She was a refugee from Rwanda, and it's her memoir of traveling through Africa as a refugee before she makes it to America. And she was a child with her sister. They were like eight and twelve or something. When this all started. So it's her story of kind of being a stranger in her own country and then throughout Africa. And then the other nonfiction I came up with was Zaytoon by Dave Eggers, where he, it's after Katrina, it reads like fiction, um, but it's the follows this guy Zaytoon as he's trying to like find his home and his family in this like waterlogged New Orleans. Can I, can I throw yeah. in like one, uh, yeah. I'm just sort of smiling here, like, um, 
So I lost the LA book uh prize to him. Did for, you? For that book. Is that the same year? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And in fact, um I knew I was going to lose. He, he was also receiving kind of the Lifetime Achievement Award oh, okay. that night. I'm like, oh, great. And then he's nominated <laughs> in my category. And, but then here's how stupid I was. So I like decided like, uh, I was going to um, lose. And then I'm sitting in my seat. And then I heard the uh, announced Dave. And I like, started to think, uh, uh, oh, my God. Forget it. Like, oh, we have the same name. Like, uh. <laughs> then, but you know what? My, my uh, publicist was sitting next to me. And I could see him, too. Like, oh, my God. Uh, and then like both of us let down. Like, oh, yeah, of course. But anyway, but I mean, who cares? But uh, but yeah, that always have a space in my heart. Like, oh, that's the one I lost you. Like, I, well, they're both really good books. Yeah. I personally, I like yours better, but nobody asked. Um, okay, the last one I have for you, Catherine, is There There by Tommy Orange. It came out this year. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer. It's about, it's multiple perspective story. It's like 20 or something of all Native Americans in Oakland. So no one's on a reservation. They're just out in the world and it's their it's like really high intensity, short, almost like short stories. I don't know. It's great. It's interesting because it's all these different people who have share this same, you know, identity of being Native American, but it's they're they vary. And so that would those would be my suggestions. How about you, Dave? All right. You know, I, I did my homework on some of the questions, but I didn't get to that one. Um and so I Oh you know, no, that was the first time oh, you're hearing okay, that good, one. Okay, good. Okay, Surprise for you. Okay. So I was trying to <laughs> usually so my thing too is like uh it tends to take me a while to figure stuff out. Like when people ask me like what's my favorite whatever, like I have to dig my brain. But I came up with like two there. Uh I'm gonna screw up the title, but um one is something like uh we wish to inform you tomorrow we will be killed yes, along with our yeah, all your families that also Rwanda, right? Yeah. 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 I read that. And yeah, I mean and it, I'm not sure it completely qualifies, but it does because like if you're a Hutu or a Tutsi, like yeah. you're in the right. place. Right. Totally. Um and by the way, that title is we, major. Yeah. And it's I mean the title comes from like um somebody cabled it, I think, to a priest. Uh, mm-hmm. that's an actual yeah. set and then and then they were killed that morning. Yeah. The next morning with their families because they didn't get help in time. Um, and the other one um, might be a stretch, but um, it also is my favorite book ever Okay, by Vladimir Nabokov. I don't recognize <laughs> <laughs> the original title is Conclusive Evidence, which is what I call it. But uh, he renamed it Speak Memory. Yeah, I mean, a lot of his life is, you know, uh, being an emigre and, um, and feeling like he didn't fit in and not really understanding the language and trying to be a writer. And then writing in English was very difficult mm-hmm. uh, from him. Um, plus the Amazing. Um, yeah, it's just extraordinary and uh, amazing. Okay, so if you guys want recommendations read for you on the air, email askingthestacks at gmail.com. Okay, Dave, we're going to dive into your questions. Let's talk about it. Two books you love and one book you hate. <laughs> ah, I love to love hate things. Uh, two I love uh, Anna Karenina. And, and by the way, except. Um, you know, it's like over 800 pages. Yes. It took me a year and a half. No. Um, and the first four page, 400 pages, by the way, I literally cut it in half. Really? Because um, it's, it's also too much like to carry hard, around. It's, it's a hold up. Like my neck would crane or my like, I got um, a wrist injury from reading Executioner's Song. Yeah. So I finally <laughs> just like, you know, I actually asked the internet first, can I just like slice this in half? And people are like, sure. It's so like, you know, I took a knife and just sliced it in half down the, and then I'm like, <laughs> it was so much nicer to just do it in two halves. And then I got a full one too. Um, and I love that on my shelves in my library is like, you can't, and I put them next to each other. Like, how come you have two copies of Anna Karenina? And like, one of them seems to be like <laughs> falling apart. Um, <laughs> but um, but the first half is slow and hard to okay. get through. And and you should have cut half of the first half. Okay. Um, 
And then the second half races. Interesting. It is so good. I'm like, why couldn't you do that? And, uh, you know, I was so happy to see um, that. You know, so then I got Nabokov has his famous, um, I think it's called uh, Essays on Russian Literature. Okay. the name of it. Um, uh, which he gave us a series of lectures at Cornell when he was um, a prop there. Um, and half the book. It, there's like 10 of them and like half the book is Anna Karenina, which he calls the the great masterpiece of Russian literature, the mm. best in the history of Russian literature. Um, and I was like, OK, so he's going to tell me why I'm wrong and why I'm all oh, what. I was so happy. No, <laughs> he says uh, he's got some major problems with it, too. And the, the first half is just like ugh, all the stuff. And the same, like like when it gets into like, you know, not just serfdom, but like um you know, the serfs and, and um, what do you call it? Like the large farms and right. communist, like, like, like just into the minutia of that. Like, why is this supposed to be in here? Mm. Um, I'm like, oh, thank you. But, you know, I mean, partly the moral of that, too, is like um, you can love something. It can be extraordinary and still have deep flaws, yes, you know, like like human beings. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like it's one of the best books of all time. Ooh, some really huge things wrong with it. You know? Right. So what? that's OK. It's still, yeah, it's still fantastic. Um what and and love uh well Jesus song we're gonna talk about. Oh Lucia Berlin, mm. who's also my mentor, but like I mean she is the sensation. And I have a Google uh, alert on her. She comes up and like constantly it's like she's the go-to example now of like strong women authors that were missed and like authors that were missed and like she's this like literary right. sensation now. Right. Um eleven years after her death, like no one had heard of her mostly in her lifetime. I did not like find her. Like I happened to like start grad school the same day that she right. was teaching there, hmm. starting teaching there. And she became a mentor and like one of my best friends. Hmm. She's the first person, not like romantically or a member of my family who ever told me she loved me. Oh yeah. And, and gave me permission to say it to other people, my mom died a year and a half ago, but like I only said, I love you to my mom the last 20 years of my life. Cause Lucia taught me how, hmm. um, and she would say it all the time. She'd like she'd giggle. I would make her giggle, and she'd be like, "I love you, darling." Oh. And I know just so effortlessly. And I was like, "Oh, like oh, I love you." Just like because you do, you right. know. Like um, it's like that's it's like oh, you know who else like gay people, uh, the gay guys also around um, like you know say to each other, right? You know, um, and you know like because you know, we do. It's like and, and well and and Latinos. I you know when I was in Denver. I had so many gay Latino friends, and they're mm. just like they also taught me like to. Be affectionate, like you know, not a cold, distant white guy. Um, that's so I was, beautiful. I, I know that's what I love so much I love about that. them. Too, like, like, oh, okay, because mm. um, they do, you know. And it's it's nice to just like know that there are people that you know love you. It's nice, good. It's good to hear. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I've had some straight guys who say, "Tell me, like, that's the thing that I admire most." Who have a lot of gay friends that like that admire most about you guys that you can like connect with your other uh, male mm. friends that way, and but and like. The spoken things instead of like, you know, instead of the unspoken thing that like, right. oh, my buddies know that. But like, it's freaking nice to hear it. Like, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's not that it's like nurture. It helps your soul, you know, to know, like, um, especially in your dark moments. That, right. You know, I know some people love me. And I know because they told me like in the right. last week, you know. Right. Um, oh, what I hate. God, so many. But uh, God, which one do I want to single out? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Who do I want to throw under the bus? <laughs> I know. Well, since you said it, like, like, uh, actually, I hated the Executioner song, although I didn't yes. finish it. Um, I don't know something about like 
the clip sentences, though, I got accused of that, but like, I don't know. I don't, I don't like the voice of it. No, um, it's no, I'm with you. I, I, I pushed through because I thought I was going to be, I thought it was something that it wasn't because if mm-hmm. you, as someone who loves true crime, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time Googling best true crime books and a lot of them are really on good. List. Yeah, Your yeah. book is on it. Helter Skelter, which is one of my favorites. Um, uh, Truman Capote, in Cold Blood you know, is on there, another course. book I love. And I knew Executioner Song was something that I had to get to. And my friend in New York had had a copy and told me to read it. And I was like, okay, finally. And last year I got to my reading goal really early. So I was like, I could read it th- 1,100 pages. Like, who cares? And just not a lot happens. I know. Like, right? the crime part is very small. And then it's just a lot of, like, angsty white guy. Really? And it's like... 800 or 1,000 pages. It's 1,100 pages. Yeah, okay. 1,147. That was the other thing. I think I got 100-some pages into it. So, okay, so I'm saying this without having finished. You know, Hemingway all said to something like when somebody's like, well, how do you know if you didn't finish? He had obviously bastardizing right. this quote from like, uh, but he's like, um, when you eat an omelet with, with rotten eggs, you don't have to eat the whole thing the whole to know thing that to it, know. yeah, or, yeah. Right, exactly. You know, you know eggs, in your heart I, I if you don't like, like something. Yeah, it's not getting any better. And it doesn't, uh, and I always say like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just know, means exactly. that I don't like it. Exactly. Like, exactly. I don't eat yep. omelets because I don't like eggs. Yep. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. eggs are bad. I just, I don't like them, which is like, I get annoyed when people are like, you don't like eggs? I'm like, more eggs for you. Leave I know. Me alone. Right. There's a lot of things in the like, world. For those of you who love Executioner Song, more Executioner Song for you, not and for I, us. And I get it that sometimes it's the, and sometimes it's the wrong time for you. Yes, that's and, not a part um, of reading. You know what Nabokov, when I read Conclusive Evidence, which by the way, the title, you know what the title refers to? Mm-mm. Conclusive Evidence of My Having Existed. Hmm. And it's kind of his autobiography. And Interesting. I'm like, oh, that's such a writer thing too. It's like, mm-hmm. this is going to be the. Thing that the mark I leave on the world. This is going to be what I do right. and how I impact this planet. Also, because I can't stop myself from writing, but also <laughs> right. I want like some conclusive evidence that I have right that you existed. Oh, yeah. I called my blog that, and like I started a blog back in two thousand one or something, and I had it for many years. I called it "Conclusive Evidence of Dave Collins Having mm, Existed." I love um, that. Okay, let's talk about what are you reading currently. Well, as usual, I'm you know doing two things at once. Um, so in my hotel room. Uh, they have like two books that you can like take with you. And then the $16 is um, donated to charity. And uh, one of them was uh, The Handmaid's Tale, mm. which I always thought I should try this. So uh, I read like two pages of it. Well, plus a little bit of introduction, um, which I tend to hate introductions. But when the introductions, because like who fucking like, I, you know, I just, right. sorry, I, I just want to get into it. But like when the introduction, her backstory was really interesting. Mm. And I was like, really? I'm like, oh. And then I flipped to it. I only got like two pages into it. Like freaking great from like the first couple pages. Um, by the way, can I toss another one? Um, probably in my top 10 favorite books, but I would consider possibly the most flawless book I've ever written, mm. read. Mm-hmm. Um, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. I don't think there's this, there's not like a spare word or a sentence in the book. It is just, there's not a mistake. And mm. it is just like as tight I saw the movie first. Okay. Nurse Ratched and right. like now it's like the seventies, but it like right. won all the Oscars of like Jack Nicholson right, is probably right. the most famous. And um Louise Fletcher is Nurse Ratched. Um so she won the Oscar for Best Actress for Nurse Ratched for just being amazing. Right. It's cold. It's terrifying. Um, yeah, terrifying. Like um over the course of the movie, um I had seen that first and I I was I was sort of really curious, like, you know, how much of the book, you know, will it take to really establish her the first page mm-hmm. of her. And the way they did he did it too is um 
By the way, uh, the Indian, what is his name? Um, the chief, I guess they call him the chief. Yeah. He's in the movie, but uh, he's the narrator of the book. Right. And it's one of the classic unreliable narrators. Right. Because he's, he's freaking certifiable and he's telling you this story. Right. So at some point, and so the first scene of her is Chief Broom, I think that's his name, um, you know, saying like, you know, it's morning and like, you know, the guys are here, the orderlies or whatever, and like, they pull back the wall where basically there's all this machinery with her brain. She's controlling like all this machinery and like, my, you know, it's all, right. all physical stuff happening. Like he's got this very involved scene. So, you know, he's unreliable from the first. Right. Like, right. He freaking thinks this is real. <laughs> and she's like, but I mean, he uses that metaphor and somebody thinking it's true of like her control she has over this place. And like in like a couple of paragraphs, you get like, mm. like, oh my God, everything that Louise Fletcher did in that movie it's like, see, like on the first page, and like every page of that thing is—it's a short book, maybe two hundred pages, or—and mm-hmm. uh, it's just really every step of the way. Anyway, there's that, and I can't remember. Oh, so oh, so *Handmaid's Tale*. So I'm two pages in, and forget loving it. Um, <laughs> but I'm also actually only about five pages into *Chronic City* by Jonathan Latham, mm. which I'm loving because. I just finally read the book that everyone's supposed to have read, um, Motherless Brooklyn, mm. which won a zillion awards. And like, I'd never read any I've never read it. Latham. I think it's one of the great books written in my lifetime. Mm. It is just, um, well, the one we're going to talk about, Jesus' Son, um, Jennifer Egan's uh, Welk, uh, well, Goon Squad. From the Goon yeah. Squad. And this are kind of my three favorites. I guess they're written in my adult lifetime yes. over the last 25 years. Uh and, and I just started in Chronic Cities. His ability to describe and just grasp and, and convey just amazing things about people or situations sort of connect them. He's, uh, he's extraordinary. He's, he, there's a brilliance there that you get on every page mm. um, that I'm – God, I guess I just realized I, was, I used to be incredibly intimidated by mm. authors like that. When I would read Makoff, it would really set me back because I'm like, I can never be this good. I can never – this what he does um and now i'm finally getting like uh i'm good at what i do and i i like pieces of this but i'm not gonna be that right, guy like i don't right. have to be that guy but it's, it's a little intimidating but god i think that's actually the first book ever maybe i was wild by that much that i really didn't there was sort of like background feelings of like just little flutters of minor mm-hmm. intimidation in the background where i didn't feel like Every page of like, oh, my God, every brilliant thing was mm. a, a double-edged sword. Like, this is amazing, and I'm unworthy. Like, I actually did not – I literally think this is the first time I ever experienced – well, I, got, I guess I got comfortable enough with my own stuff. I think, by the way, that a big part of that is having a second book. Mm. For some reason, the whole imposter syndrome thing has become a right. thing lately. I've had that for a long time. And um, partly, you know, I didn't publish my first book until I was like my late 40s. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to write books, but like, I don't actually have a book. Um, and then for a while, you know, 10 years to do the second book, um, you know, when people ask, you know, oh, what kind of writing do you do? Cause I say I'm a writer when people ask, um, and oh, what do you do? I'm like, well, books mainly. And that started to feel more and more like, not a lie, but like, I don't know, a little like, uh, making that plural, like mm-hmm. books, except, <laughs> well, book mainly. Like, yeah. I yeah. actually only have the one. Or, right. or they'd ask, like, oh, what are some of your books? I'm like, well, I only have the one. Right. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, sophomore syndrome has always, and I think even since I was, like, in college, you know, so many, it happens in so many bands. Right, And right. Uh, being very aware of, I think artists of any form, 
there's a fear of failure. There's, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of pressure. Your, your, your second attempt of anything when the first one is hit either critically or commercially. And Columbine right. was both. both. Okay. Um, you know, it was a bestseller and won a bunch of awards. And, right. And yeah, I also got like, I don't have to be modest about the way I can just like, those are just like facts. But um, right. um, no need to be modest here. You should <laughs> toot your own horn. My God, it's an amazing book. <laughs> Yeah, but like, but yeah, I believe in the whole false modesty. Like, right. it was a hit. It's like, uh, and so, uh, so sophomore syndrome hanging over my head for mm-hmm. for ten years. And I think, um, and especially since then, spending ten years on the second book, but then having nine years, and then having to the soldiers book, and having to step aside and do this other one, insert it like right. in and write it in like so record quick. and write it in ten months. Right. Um, and just, yeah, I wrote most of it in about three months and wow. just turned it out. And then fearing like, and I remember having this conversation with my agent, Betsy, in the spring of like, if I should do this, I'm like, will I be able to do a really good book like in the next six months? Will that hurt my career? If like, mm. what if it's like, ah, not a shitty book. What if it's a mediocre book? Is like, hmm. should I, you know, do this sort of race book? Um, not on race, but race right. writing. Um, and um, and then I, was, I ended up being, and I decided like, well, I'm just going to, I need to write this book and I just right. need to do it and right. be damned like whatever things. But it, it, it was it, it, it's given me confidence in a different kind of way that I can I can make this happen very quickly and then I can have material I like too. And um, yeah, and I can do a second one. I can do this again. And now it really helps that I've almost done three books, right. um, you know, and I'm like, OK, I, I do know how to do this. And it really has helped sort of crystallize things mm. about that third book in the process, too. Um and uh, yeah, so I, I think there is maybe a different confidence because uh, and this book came out, it, was a hit. it, it hit the New York Times bestseller right. list and, and a lot of people love it. I'm getting wonderful feedback right. on it. So um, and it's a completely different kind so of different. book. It's, <laughs> so you know, different. It's such a different, uh, and actually there's a lot of confusion uh, because of the titles and we should have put the subtitle maybe on the cover, but right. Um, but the cover, it would be messy. You couldn't I know. Do, it's right? like you we, don't, people can open the book. Don't worry about it. Okay. So I'm anyway, going to ask. But yeah, so I have a different kind of confidence. Yeah. yeah. So go on. We're going to do a few more questions. Okay, We've yeah. really gone over, but I just don't care. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to short answer. Yes. We're going to do, I'm only going to ask you three more. So okay, I'll try to do the quick version. So question number one of three is what are, who are some authors that you look to or admire or who inspire you either just for their writing, but also maybe like towards in the direction of what you do, yeah. the kind of writing you do. Well, I mean, somebody else already mentioned um, all the the Russians. Weirdly, I don't understand why. Like, you know, if you'd meet me of like nineteenth century czarist Russia, right. would be like the last kind of people I would feel this weird connection right. with. But like, you know, Nabokov, Chekhov. Um, now I'm getting into Tolstoy. Um, uh, who's the one who wrote? Uh, Notes from Underground and uh, the brothers Karasmov's Car- novel. Yeah, um, uh, him Dostoevsky. Yes. Uh, I don't know why it is a fact. I, I just it's a, uh, for them, but uh, but Lucia Berlin mm-hmm. who mentored me and taught me so much. Um, and yeah, and I want to do a, a lot of the the candor and the honesty mm-hmm. that she has, and um, and Dennis Johnson. Mm-hmm. Although I don't always love all of his. Books. Um, some of the situations don't completely work for me, but his his styles. Like uh, my friend who I mentioned, Bill Lyshak, he's just this amazing. T- people have insights about the world and mm-hmm. in their writing. This and you know Jennifer Egan and um, and uh, Jonathan Latham. Um, yeah, definitely. Those are some of them. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Barry Yargrau who wrote mm-hmm. wearing Dad's hat, mm-hmm. wearing Dad's head, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. It's these little vignettes and. 
Uh, what is literal? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a kid. <laughs> um, all these kinds of ones are they're amazing little. Uh, I take different things from different people, but um, Faulkner. Mm. I also like thought like spent my whole life. You know, these lists of people. Also feeling this guilt of like great authors I've never read. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'll turn some people off here. Um, also, out of ignorance, I've never read a Dick- Dickens novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of Dickens has always turned me off, and I have tried so many times, and everything about them turns me off. That's okay. Um, I know, and it's like, like, okay, I can read this stuff, but like, I'm pretty sure I'm not going li- to, I don't like anything about what he's doing. It, and I always thought like a Faulkner that like, oh, I'm not going to like that. And then I was like, oh my God, I like, <laughs> like Southern Gothic right. or whatever, like, oh, that sounds like awful to me. Um, and, you know, and I lived in the South several times. I lived in Georgia and North Florida, what, uh, you know, Texas. <laughs> and um, As I Lay Dying was also the first one I read and um, drove me nuts. So this is sort of like the example of why you should stick with things longer because it was driving me mad because, you know, like he doesn't tell you that he keeps changing the narrator for the first couple oh, of chapters. I've never like, read it. Oh, each chapter from a different person's point of view. Mm. Like, let's flip to chapter two. There's short I don't know, three to five page chapters and you get to page six and it's like the voice is different. Everything's different. Like what? It doesn't make any sense. Like, Oh, and the early chapters are the chapter title is the name person's name, but, um, but still, okay. So that you know that you have to figure that out for yourself, but that's not that hard to figure out constantly in that book. You do mm. not know what the hell is going on, but it took, and it was driving me crazy for, I think 25 pages or something until it suddenly clicked every time I'm totally confused and don't know what the hell's going on. Give it a page or two, and it will all fall into place. Mm. So just sort of suspend and keep reading. Um, and not only like, so that sounds like kind of a gimmick, right? It's not a gimmick. Right. You are much richer for not having known because you didn't know, neither did the person who was telling the story. Right. Was not understanding what was going on. There's like a lot of, it's a family. And right. A lot of stuff going on. And you're getting his or her perspective that's completely in the dark. And then when it clicks, because then you're getting the other person like, mm. oh. And like, you felt like. Right. You had to work felt. through it too. That helped me with Columbine, by the way. I was re- reading that while writing Columbine. Oh, wow. And deciding how many protagonists and like toying with the idea of having 10 protagonists. Right. Not just 10 main characters, but each one is sort of protagonist. Right. And 10 little clusters of people right a whole little you know supporting cast and thinking can i do that and then it's like he's got like a dozen not just <laughs> protagonists like narrators like, right and i was sort of like if he can pull that off that's much harder like much okay harder. i can do this <laughs> um but like and his stuff is so different from what i do but but also because sort of like descriptors and like there's yeah i'm pulling different pieces like you probably never see any um you might read all of Faulkner's stuff and never see any connection to me, but there's certain things that um, right. that are in common and that I'm pulling and that I'm perfecting. It's all like, um, well, I oh, it is with me here. So I, I put fizz, P-H-Y-S, in the margin. Anyway, fizz in the um, margin because um, I used to not know how to describe people. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, well, or do that, you know, little thumbnail sketch. Mm-hmm. I don't describe people naturally. I just, I, I'm all about what's going on, what's happening, right. the plot and the character, and not like, what do they look like? I don't freaking care. So I had to learn to just insert that because other people did. And in writing school, people were like, I don't even know what he looks like. Or, you know. Right. Like, so I, I always felt like I was doing that awkwardly. So I set about to just learn how people did that. And so I still do for practice. Um, 
every single book when they describe a character, I just mark in the margin where it's happening, book P-H-Y-S, uh, short for physical description. Um, just by doing that, it helps me sort of like notice and like... Um, a couple of the reviews of Columbine, one in particular, I can't remember who it was, said um, Columbine really has a knack for the thumbnail description. <laughs> um, and then some people did on Parkland too. I was like, oh, I learned how to do that. Yeah. Like where somebody's actually like complimenting me. My goal was to get up to an acceptable level of doing right. it. I, didn't, I just want to be not <laughs> shitty at that. One of my favorite um, Elvis Costello uh, lines, uh, don't want to be first. I just want to pass. Right. right. Um, and that's just what I wanted to be, make that passable. And because then I studied so hard on it for 20 years because I was so terrible at it. Like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at it. But it still doesn't completely come natural to me. But now I love doing it, though. It's selecting, you know. And I remember learning from uh, Janet Burway, by the way, who wrote the great book on writing called Writing Fiction, mm-hmm. a guided narrative craft, The Telling Detail. Mm-hmm. You know, and she talks about how, like, some writer, you know, young writers, and you see this in writing school, you know, especially with undergrad, it's like, like, you know, every stupid person who enters, like they describe them like, you know, the barista at Starbucks. And like, right. you know, you get like her outfit, like her character. Like, we don't need to know what we've got. Right. Plus a list of things. I like, hate you know, that. Yeah. But it's like the telling thing. Like, but now that's like such a puzzle. Like, okay, if I was going to tell like one or two, three things about this person. And what's going to think that nails them? Like, and I, I have certain touchstones. I remember like Ann Waldman, um, the joke is she's never been seen in public without a scarf. Like she's like this African. Right, she's like, right. Like, like picture a drag queen with a boa. It's right, like a, right. A okay. Woman's version. And, you know, and to the point like, uh, you know, the joke is like uh, it's covering up where, you know, her head is stitched on, you know, right, stitched right, on right. around her neck or something and her head would fall off if it were not. But I, but she could never be seen without a boa. I, I was just telling a guy too at the gym, it's like, because um, he's writing a story about testosterone and a guy's bulking up and I'm like, you know, he wanted some pointers. I'm like, you know, it's descriptors like, like if I were describing some guy, I'd be like, um, you know, the whole thing about um, the guys who cut their shirts yes, off, yes. you know, into like a tank top, mm-hmm. like cut, cut it just far enough. So like it just barely cover, covers your nipple. Right. Except enough that like doing certain sets of like nipple pop out. Right. And, like there's this weird thing of like the gym, right. like uh, for a man, it's like immodest. Like, you don't know. And then like the really slutty guys who like cut it where the nipples are. Right. But, like, that is like a thing and like right. you know and like, that um, like means something yeah and if that guy was doing it, like you can tell a lot about his character by how he cuts his shirt like that would be my telling detail mm. i would use for that guy but but so it, and i was just doing that off the top of my head but i was like really yeah if i were at the gym too it's like um that i'm gonna like pull out that you're gonna remember about them too. right um and that can help you imagine it as the reader yeah or imagine that person yeah, and I think I let what okay, I should do the other ones really quick. What was the other part of that question? That no, I, that was it. Okay, <laughs> I think I don't I even know. remember. I, I skip part of it, but I know. I know. <laughs> it's okay. Okay, short. I have two more. This one you have to do short because okay. the last one I really want to get to. Right. This one is obviously your brain moves very fast, which I love. Jumping which around, I right? I relate to you. I can spin out like about. I can talk about anything. You know, how do you like to read? Like, how can oh. you kind of like. Because I feel like if I'm really up on something or like feeling all the vibes, it's hard for me to read because it takes like I have to be in the right spot to kind of like come down and focus uh on someone else's story. So what's your setup for reading? Like what's your ideal reading setup? A really comfy chair. Okay. Um, I can't be too tired because then I fall asleep. Me too. And I can't do it for too long because I'll fall asleep. Um, And but with a pen in my hand, I try to stop myself, but uh, I underline and put a check mark of things I 
like, and I wrote all, write all sorts of hmm. margin notes and sometimes arguments with myself in there. Um, so I had to be kind of engaged. Okay. And I think, you know, I was just going to, I was starting to think as I said that to you of like, I fall asleep. I'm like, no, I don't. I used to like, oh, since I started like using a pen, right. I have to be kind of an active part of the process it. with it. Um, yeah. Cause if it's too sedentary and like just sitting there, um, then I fall asleep. But, um, I got a new couch recently. Mm-hmm. I freaking love it. And so I can just get really cozy in there. <laughs> but, and it has to be a place that I like, I don't do other work or other sorts of okay. things. And really the only thing I do, and it's not a couch, it's actually a love seat because mm-hmm. my health kitchen apartment, there isn't room for a There's couch. A, a, a two-seater is like as wide as the living room will accommodate. Um, sometimes I watch TV there, but usually not even, usually I watch TV in the kitchen okay. while cooking and doing mm-hmm. stuff. But, um, so it's mainly, it's almost my reading couch. Um, mm. And like, I have learned it helps if it's like actually facing in a different direction. Mm. And so I'm like, I've got a different visual and a like different than I do mm. other things. I like it to sort of like be its own right. world. That's like different from all the other, you know, even, yeah. like Yeah. So it puts me in a different, slightly different headspace. So, uh, yeah. Okay. And then here's the last one. I stole this from the New York Times. Uh book review. I love it. The buy the if, book thing? Yeah, the buy the book. Exactly. Um, if you could recommend one book to the current president of the United States, what would it be? Well, and the Constitution doesn't count because I think he's... I no swear to you, that is the number one answer oh, that really? people say. The Constitution, every time, I'm like, yeah, we get it. He know, doesn't I know, know that. Yeah. Okay, sorry. That just like, uh, <laughs> came to me. Um, but yeah, he should read that. That would be a good place. I, you know, I hate to keep going back to the well, too, but... Um, I would have him read Lucia Berlin's A Manual for Cleaning Women, mm. um, which is short stories, mm-hmm. um, mostly of working class women, mm-hmm. um, of worlds that I think he's completely unaware of, like riding the bus in, right. uh, you know, in Oakland and mm-hmm. shitty neighborhoods, you know, trying to find the, enough dimes, you know, right. to pay their fare, um, switchboards when that was a thing. It's right. like um, a lot of people who probably work for him. Right. Um and he has sort of no awareness of their lives mm. and no, you know, sense of, uh, you know, riding around his helicopter. By the way, let me back up to one. Um, one of the smartest things Lucia ever said to me, Chekhov is, uh, is, is, was her sort of favorite person she aspired to. And especially his sort of, um, was respect for everybody and lack of judgment mm. about everybody. Mm-hmm. I remember her saying to me that um, he will treat a princess and a chambermaid you know, with exactly the same kind of respect and lack of judgment. And then she waited a beat for that to sink in. And she said, um, I know you got, ex- you just took exactly the wrong world from that. And yeah, you know what, I know what you took from that was um, he should treat the, the chambermaid with as much res- mm-hmm. respect as the princess. That was easy for you to get. Cause you would too, because you would disdain the princess and you would be making fun of her. Mm-hmm. Your challenge is, is to treat the princess also with as much compassion and mm. as a chambermaid, uh, because she's a person too. Right. And I mean, Trump doesn't have that problem. He, he would need to do it with the maid. Right. But we're all different. And wherever you're coming at right. it, you know, wherever you come out of that equation, because uh, I do have disdain for royalty and princess right. and princess. And right. I, I refer to the uh, that unemployed woman in England. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and like when there was a pregnancy, I, right. I tweeted like, oh, that unemployed woman in, in you know, in England uh, right. is pregnant now. Um, I mean, that's what the freaking Windsors are to me. But 
they're human beings too. And they're trying and they're doing something. And so, you know, so I'm sort of bitchy about it, but like, I guess that's the thing is like, um, I can be bitchy about the Windsors and hate watch. I hate watch the crown mm-hmm. and like my friends are like, and a, and a lot of other stuff um, and Victoria. Um, but, um, but if I were to write about the Windsors or royalties, I would have to let that go. Right. And, um, and treat them. And I think that's what we forget that it's very easy to sort of like be like, Oh yeah. Other without knowing it, but like, Oh yeah. Other people's like, Oh, they're not giving, you know, the uh, chambermaids, like, like, right. I would be interviewing, you know, the maid and, and, you know, fascinated by them. Like I, that's easy for me to respect her. Right. Right. And like, I don't think she's an idiot. She may well be uneducated because like where she came from, she had no right. chance, but like, she could be like a Rhodes Scholar right, who never got course. a chance to go um, past third grade. Or, or maybe she did, you know, but, right. but anyway. But uh, but I'm fascinated to find out. I don't have a problem with that, but I do. But we all have a problem with somebody. And that's the thing, too. And she's like, she's really net. Cracked it. We're like, she respects everybody in right, these stories. Right. Whether she would love them or hate them in real life. Right. Um, she's not judging them on, when they're the characters. Mm. And that's what I... And Chekhov didn't either. Right. Um and um, and I, I I think she totally exceeded him, you know, mm. and, and I, you know, that would have sounded ridiculous 20 years ago. Now that she's like the New York Times has called her a genius more than one occasion. Like, I, I really think she did uh, right. further than he did, too. And with more people, I don't know that Chekhov knew. I mean, I don't know. I don't actually know his bio. I, I don't know if he was like really getting those working class people mm. as well uh, or if he was, you know, sort of making them up and not really knowing what he's talking about. I don't know. But I know Lucia did all those jobs. Right. It was an alcoholic forever. And, you know, had had her three husbands, I think, at least one alcoholic and two drug addicts and, you know, lived in that world. But, yeah, I, I, Trump, Trump would uh, – of course he wouldn't. But uh, if he right. got these stories and, like, took them to heart uh, – Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that's implied in the question. Right. Read the book and, like, you know, really right. went and there like, with it. paid attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think he could, you know, do for – uh, meeting some some other people in America. I love that. Okay, so we're going to sign off today. We're going to be back next week. We're reading Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. Read it. It's super short. You can read it in like a day. That's what I did. And we'll be back next week with Dave Cullen. But for now, Dave, thank you for being here. Thanks so much. And we'll see you guys in the stacks. All right. That does it for us today on The Stacks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Dave Collin for joining us. Dave will be back next Wednesday to discuss Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. Also, I wanted to say a special thank you to Leslie Cohen at HarperCollins for helping us set up this interview. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes, along with links to all of our social media accounts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Stacks Pod and on Twitter at The Stacks Pod underscore, or check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Get your book recommendations read on air by emailing askingthestacks at gmail.com. And to join the Stacks Pack, get inside access to this show and more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I will see you in the Stacks.